Misinformation is information that is factually incorrect, but not created with the intention of causing any harm, and probably not spread with the intention of misinforming anyone else. Disinformation is information that is factually incorrect and which is created with the intention of increasing misunderstanding, causing harm, and or sowing discord. Malinformation is information that is based on reality and that will often be nearly accurate but with a slant that is intended to sway people's thoughts, behaviors, and in many cases the way that they treat each other, their institutions, their spending habits, and their vote. All three types of false information dissemination are potentially harmful, but not in the same way, and the source of such information is often quite different with different intentions behind doing that sharing. Misinformational spread is generally the result of well-meaning people sharing things that they think, assume, or hope is true, but which is not. And that can mean everything from sharing a news article from several years back, thinking that it's a recent news article and just not thinking to check the date on the byline, to sharing a tweet or Facebook post about a protest that has an image from an entirely different protest attached to it. All of us, at some point, have almost certainly accidentally spread misinformation, it's the nature of our social network-enabled online world to be exposed to a constant deluge of data, and a huge quantity of that data will be incorrect in its entirety or in its details. Our spreading of misinformation is usually the consequence of nothing more malicious than us failing to be experts on absolutely everything there is to know. Though even experts will sometimes unwittingly spread misinformation about their own fields. So it's a fair bet that not even universal expertise would be a sufficient shield to avoid playing a role in the misinformation ecosystem. Disinformational spread is the consequence of conscious thought. Someone deciding to make something up in its entirety or just in part in order to change someone's mind about a particular topic to instigate action about something, or to muddy the waters when it comes to discussion about a specific topic. A recent example of disinformation that received fairly widespread prominence, even leading to a lawsuit against the people spreading that disinformation, was a monetary figure that supporters of the United Kingdom Brexit Leave campaign had printed on the side of a bus that they drove around the country while campaigning leading up to the 2016 Brexit referendum. Supporters of the effort to leave the European Union claimed, in massive lettering on the bus, that the UK sends the EU £350 million a week. And this claim was followed by a call to use that money to fund the NHS, the UK National Health Services, instead, followed then by a call to action, vote leave. This figure was known to be wildly inaccurate at the time. The UK only pays about £199 million a week into the EU pool, and that figure does not take into account the amount of money that comes back into the country as a consequence of that membership. So it was a doubly misleading figure, but the number was also legally proven, eventually, to be way off base, in a way that forced those using it to backtrack and to eventually claim that they'd just made a miscalculation. But this was only after the referendum was finished, at which point the disinformation had already spread, becoming a key talking point for those who favored leaving the EU. 
Thus, this disinformation had also become misinformation that was spread by well-meaning people who did not have any reason to know that it was incorrect. Disinformation very often becomes misinformation, starting as an intentional manipulative lie spread from a central source before rippling outward, spread by people who are not in on the lie and who may know that it's a lie, but who very well may not. And this ripple effect incentivizes those who wish to convince a very large number of people just about anything. It incentivizes them to create compelling, emotionally engrossing, or memorable lies that support their causes or assertions. Malinformation is a term that embodies a specific type of disinformation, in that the information being spread is not precisely a lie. It's not a totally made-up number, for instance, but it is often a lie of omission and context. And in practice, it generally involves taking something factual, some piece of news or a photo or something along those lines, and then sharing it without proper explanation or in a misleading context so that the information strongly implies something that encourages immense negative emotions or even physical responses against a particular idea or group. Malinformation is very similar to propaganda in that it has a basis in truth and thus is often quite difficult to disprove entirely because it's easy for the supporters of this skewed information to just point at the factual bits and say that detractors are getting upset about nothing. But the way we share information and the context in which we place it is vital for complete understanding. And it's possible, for instance, to share a photo of a young man with his face beaten up and bruised, a cut across the bridge of his nose, and to post it with a caption about the dangers of going out for a drink as a conservative. The real story, though, might be that the young man in the photo is a conservative voter and did go out for a drink, but that his face was injured when he got drunk and fell into a wall, and the cut across his nose is from a coat hanger, which is what seems to be the case with a recent image bearing that type of caption that was spread around social media by various services, followed by a secondary wave of individuals spreading it as misinformation. In this case, the photo was real, the damage to the young man's face was real, and none of the words used were technically wrong. But the way the information was presented was intended to create the impression that the young man had been beaten up for his politics, and implicitly, that people with opposing politics had been horrible and brutal enough to hurt him for what he believed. A useful ploy when you want to organize a group against an opposing group, which increases animosity but can also increase solidarity and eventually, conceivably, voter turnout. Neither disinformation nor malinformation are limited to any one party, ideology, or group. These methods are used so frequently and so widely because they are very effective, and the half-life of mistruth, whatever shape it takes, is very long. Even after proof that dis or malinformation is incorrect is published, the chances that the people exposed to the original bad information will see it is small, and the chance that they will change their mind if they do see it for a variety of reasons, some of them hardwired and psychological in nature, is even smaller. And because of the nature of our modern networks, the immense reach with which they provide us, but also their nebulous nature and their ability to decouple information from facts and data, makes us all the more reliant on information disseminators than information sources, and in turn makes us less likely to think critically about the majority of things that we see. Only questioning things, maybe, that disagree with our existing worldview, and very seldom questioning things that appear to support that existing worldview. Because of this, 
Each falsehood is long-lived, at times practically immortal, but potentially living just long enough to manipulate a particular news cycle. And truth and purveyors of truth have a very difficult time catching up, diffusing the explosive buildups of ignorance and hatred and misinformation that ripple further and further outward, leading to groups of people who have genuinely different understandings of the world, our perspective shaped in part by the facts to which we've been exposed, but increasingly also by the mis, dis, and mal-information that we've been fed by people and other entities who want us to think and behave in a certain way. And if nothing else, that want us to become little antennas amplifying their messages to yet more people, expanding their range of influence, adding to the noise that overwhelms the signal across the majority of our modern mass communication mediums. What I'd like to talk about today is the weaponization of factually incorrect information, the impact it can have, and how it might evolve in the future. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from the New York Times, and it's entitled, At Least 70 Countries Have Had Disinformation Campaigns, Study Finds. This story gets pretty deep pretty fast, so let's start with a quote, the opening few paragraphs of that piece, before getting into deeper details, looking at recent historical context, and exploring what this all might mean. From the article, quote, In Vietnam, citizens were enlisted to pro-government messages on their personal Facebook pages. The Guatemalan government used hacked and stolen social media accounts to silence dissenting opinions. Ethiopia's ruling party hired people to influence social media conversations in its favor. Despite increased efforts by internet platforms like Facebook to combat internet disinformation, the use of the techniques by governments around the world is growing according to a report released Thursday by researchers at Oxford University. Governments are spreading disinformation to discredit political opponents, bury opposing views, and interfere in foreign affairs. The researchers compiled information from news organizations, civil society groups, and governments to create one of the most comprehensive inventories of disinformation practices by governments around the world. They found that the number of countries with political disinformation campaigns more than doubled to 70 in the last two years, with evidence of at least one political party or government entity in each of those countries engaging in social media manipulation, end quote. So the story is that a report was published by Oxford University mapping out a portion of the disinformation landscape. And remember, disinformation is incorrect information intentionally spread to achieve some kind of goal whether that goal is politically motivated, intended to cause harm, or intended to simply muddy the waters of discourse. This research found that in at least 70 countries, there is at least one entity, be it a political party or the government itself, engaged in an active campaign of disinformation, mistruths sown with intent. This is up from 48 countries in 2018 and 28 countries in 2017, so the number of entities with these sorts of disinformation programs are growing at a significant pace. In 26 countries, automation tools plugged into social networks are being used to, quoting from the report, quote, suppress fundamental human rights, discredit political opponents, and drown out dissenting opinions, end quote. 
Seven of these countries are using sophisticated computational propaganda, a term used for dis- and malinformation spread online in this report, to conduct influence operations across borders in other countries. These countries are China, India, Iran, Pakistan, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela. China's entry into the global disinformation trade, attempting to shape conversations beyond their own borders, is a fairly recent thing, but has substantially impacted the state of play due to their relatively sophisticated methods, tools, and large budget for these types of things. And despite the large number of social networks available, Facebook remains the top choice for social media manipulation. In 56 of the 70 countries engaged in disinformation campaigns, Facebook is the primary or exclusive network used to spread disinformation. This research is interesting and valuable, but it's also important to drop some major caveats before we get into what it all means. First, if we're going to name-check the seven countries known to be going cross-border with these activities, I think it's only fair that we also hit the 70 that have active disinformation campaigns internally, because it's a fairly diverse collection of countries, many of which espouse values that would seem to be in contradiction with this type of behavior. So the countries that these researchers found to have currently operating internal disinformation campaigns by the government or at least one political party are Angola, Argentina, Armenia, Australia, Azerbaijan, Bahrain, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Brazil, Cambodia, China, Colombia, Croatia, Cuba, Czech Republic, Ecuador, Egypt, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Georgia, Germany, Greece, Guatemala, Honduras, Hungary, India, Indonesia, Iran, Israel, Italy, Kazakhstan, Kenya, Kyrgyzstan, Macedonia, Malaysia, Malta, Mexico, Moldova, Myanmar, Netherlands, Nigeria, North Korea, Pakistan, Philippines, Poland, Qatar, Russia, Rwanda, Saudi Arabia, Serbia, South Africa, South Korea, Spain, Sri Lanka, Sudan, Sweden, Syria, Taiwan, Tajikistan, Thailand, Tunisia, Turkey, Ukraine, United Arab Emirates, United Kingdom, United States, Uzbekistan, Venezuela, Vietnam, and Zimbabwe. Of those countries, the ones with active computational propaganda tools are primarily authoritarian countries. So Vietnam, Qatar, Russia, Cuba, these are the countries that are censoring information that they do not like, spreading fake facts to change people's perception and to discredit their enemies, and blanketing conversational channels like Facebook, but also other networks. Twitter is a close second, but WhatsApp is pretty high in a lot of these countries as well. They're blanketing those networks with noise, which could mean people sitting at computers type-shouting at anyone who disagrees with the party line, or it could mean bots that jump into conversations about hot topics to threaten those participating or to just stir up anger on both sides. They might also try to create rifts within an opponent's ranks by sowing discord between the smaller groups that make up their larger tribes. Second caveat, this research, like all research, is inherently limited in scope and thus only denotes that which showed up under their very specific magnifying glass. In this case, they conducted an analysis of existing reporting on the subject, a review of public archives and scientific reports, drafted country-specific case studies, and consulted with experts in these fields. This means there is plenty of activity that is no doubt happening that would not show up in this report because there has not been well-documented journalism about it. There have not been scientific papers written about it, or because the consultants that they worked with either didn't know about it or did not mention it, perhaps because they had reasons not to mention it. None of which is to cast any doubt on the legitimacy of this work. What is there seems to be legit. 
It's just that any research will be inherently reductive based on the methods that are used and on the blatant limited scope of said research. So it's a very fair bet that there are other countries using tricks, like propaganda spewing bots, that are either using methods that would not show up using this kind of research, are using them in a different way, and thus they are not registering in the same way. Other countries doing similar things are registering. Or perhaps there's some kind of bias in the reporting and researching and expertise those producing the reports have used as source materials. It's likely, for instance, for a wide variety of reasons, that there might be more specialists on all things China than there would be for all things Malta right at this moment in history. And as a consequence, we might be more aware of and capable of ascertaining with greater resolution things, even classified things, that are happening within China than in Malta. And third, there are so many shapes that disinformation campaigns can take that it's difficult to compare and contrast, much less confidently and accurately put them all under one header. In North Korea, there are hackers that work for the state that do things like digitally rob banks overseas, but which also conduct disinformation campaigns under the auspices of their formal military structure. In Russia, there are government disinformation workers, but there are also outside hacker groups that are sometimes affiliated with the government, but which are not formally part of the government structure. They are mercenaries of a sort, who would seem to have some kind of connection and loyalty to the state, but which are not officially of the state. Many countries utilize a similar structure because it gives them the ability, if caught, to portray the activities taking place as something outside of their control. This is not our government that is hacking you. It's some rogue group that happens to be from around here. You know how these rogue groups can be. And even though that rogue group might be funded directly or indirectly by the government, this separation can be tricky to prove with any level of certainty. And it's also possible to accidentally lump in non-government affiliated groups with governments because their causes are temporarily or occasionally aligned, even if that direct connection is not actually there. This is arguably the case with WikiLeaks, which is almost certainly not actually affiliated with the Russian government in any strong, solid way, but which, because their purposes have at times aligned with the purposes of the Russian government, has been itself labeled a Russian government stooge, which could be true, but it is also quite possibly not true. It's very, very difficult to say. All of which is to say that while this information is interesting and useful, it's also not foolproof, and it's not the last word on any of this. We are still, in many ways, developing our vocabulary for discussing this sort of thing, and sorting out how to ascertain who's doing what, and how blame and punishment should be distributed and levied based on different permutations of the various models that have been used and documented thus far. So part of the broader story here is that entities around the world, government and political entities, but also interest groups and religious denominations and corporations and communities and organizations of all shapes and sizes, have been utilizing techniques that would not be entirely unfamiliar to a typical marketing manager, someone who's trying to convince someone else of something, to buy a gadget or to vote for a particular politician for state treasurer. They're all using these techniques and at times scaling them up. And some of these groups are becoming more comfortable with crossing the often porous lines between misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation, seeding the ground for the outcomes that they want to see, and often preemptively exculpating themselves from criticism or legal consequences by hiring the dirty work out to a third party, 
or muddling it so completely that it can seem like just an honest mistake, an understandable blunder, rather than an intentional mistruth spread for personal or ideological gain. That is the baseline of what's happening, primarily, I would argue, as a consequence of the tools that we have available. Manipulation tactics, whomever might be employing them, evolve as our tools evolve. And it makes perfect sense that what used to take place at the city square, in newspapers, and on one of the few available TV channels, might now be taking place online, with the tactics being employed changing shape and being honed to take advantage of the powers that we are granted by these new tools, and to exploit the vulnerabilities that they open up in all of us to varying degrees. Another part of this story, though, is about the industrialization, the codification and expansion of these methods into formal, marketable practice, so that it's no longer just individuals figuring out ways to rev up their Twitter audiences when they want them to sign a petition. It's large companies, organizations, and government agencies investing gobs of money to figure out how to manipulate, obfuscate, and muddle on a massive scale and to greater and greater effect. And although China is a recently emergent behemoth in this space, investing tons of money and human effort into confounding the storyline over the recent round of Hong Kong protests, for instance, arguably the two OGs in this space, in recent history anyway, and in terms of staying power, scale, and effectiveness, is the Russian government and a company called SCL Group. As I've mentioned on this show previously, Russia has been particularly successful, especially in the past few decades, at trying out novel methods of warfare that toe the line just right so they can get what they want, acquire more power and resources, thumb their noses at their rivals, and avoid the majority of consequences that would otherwise be leveraged against someone doing similar things in a less clever way. From a piece published by the University of Washington's School of International Studies about Russian disinformation in Ukraine leading up to the former's annexation of Crimea from the latter, quote, The spread of propaganda and the manipulation of facts were one of the primary aids that helped Russia to annex the Crimean Peninsula on March 17, 2014. While the occupation was accomplished with physical military force, the invasion began in the minds of the Crimeans. The invasion of Ukraine's territory and annexation of Crimea was preceded by a propaganda campaign by Russian state media, such as Russia 24, NTV, Channel 1, ORT, and Russia 1, all widely popular on the peninsula at the time. While many Ukrainians protested corruption and anti-Western oppressive policies of the regime in Kiev, a very different narrative was broadcasted to Crimeans about those events. Such narratives led people in Crimea to believe their lives and freedoms were in danger from their fellow citizens in Kiev. As a result, when the Russian military came offering protection, many gladly accepted, justifying it with the ethnic belonging to Russian culture." End quote. Russian state media has also been called out for influencing European Union elections, often with the ostensible purpose of increasing the prominence of extreme views, especially on hot-button issues like religion and immigration, and then fanning the flames of conflict between the groups who are encouraged to hold these increasingly extreme views. There are also numerous instances of Russian oligarchs and Russian government-tied businesses funneling sums of money to extreme political organizations, more frequently those on the far right of issues, but also, in a few cases, those on the very far left around the world. 
but especially in NATO countries. In a seeming attempt to keep the people in these countries at war with themselves, culturally, and potentially, though this would be difficult to definitively prove, to mess with the democratic systems that are in place in those countries. And I'll talk more about that specifically in a moment. So Russia has been making use of disinformation and malinformation, which then reverberates into a great deal of free misinformation, which is supported by their media infrastructure, their actual hacking of people and groups, including governments and political parties, and in rare instances, the utilization of military forces. Though in the case of their stepping in to take Crimea from Ukraine, the Russian forces removed all Russian flags and other identifying markers from their uniforms, which allowed Russia not convincingly, but convincingly enough to allow them to get away with it, to essentially declare war with a neighboring country, take their stuff, and as is almost always the case with their hacking efforts, turn around and claim it was someone else. In this case, they claimed that it was patriotic people from within their country who independently crossed the border with a bunch of military-grade artillery and such to save their countrymen from the oppression under which they suffered at the hands of the European-leaning urbanites in Kiev. The SCL Group, SCL standing for Strategic Communication Laboratories, which was the company's original name, was a behavioral research and strategic communications company based in the UK that had subsidiary operations elsewhere, including what is today probably its most famous sub-brand, US-based Cambridge Analytica. SCL Group was founded by an advertising and TV world denizen named Nigel Oakes, who had studied mass behavior and how to change it, and decided that it might be valuable to provide services related to the intentional shifting of popular opinion using insights derived from recent research in psychology and anthropology. SCL got off the ground in the private sector and then segued into the world of politics and the military. Promotional blitzes in the mid to late 2000s marketed their wares to local governments, indicating that they could trick civilians into doing what was best for them, in the event of, for instance, a smallpox outbreak, during which people might not believe what they're being told by the news, but who would still come to hospitals to be treated if they could be convinced that there was another, more to them anyway, likely-sounding catastrophe happening, a toxic cloud erupting from a local chemical plant, for instance. The idea here, then, was that the SCL would consult with and or manage the communications affairs of local governments when these governments wanted their people to behave in a particular way. Theoretically, this might mean that they could help get out the vote, getting more of the population to participate in democracy, or it could convince them to get their vaccines to prevent seasonal flu outbreaks. What they seemed to realize along the way, though, was that they could also accomplish the opposite. They could convince people, very specific groups of people, to not vote. And they could conceivably convince people that vaccines are bad and to not trust health professionals if they wanted to. SCL primarily worked in the developing world, manipulating public opinion and political outcomes in this way, even claiming to be able to foment coups, though there are no official ties, no official evidence, that the company ever did even in the cases where coups actually took place in the countries where they were operating at the time. They did, however, publicly claim to have influenced elections in Italy, Latvia, Ukraine, Albania, Romania, South Africa, Nigeria, Kenya, Mauritius, India, Indonesia, the Philippines, Thailand, Taiwan, Colombia, Antigua, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, St. Kitts and Nevis, and Trinidad and Tobago, alongside their early work in the United Kingdom, where they got their start 
and where the government initially classified their work as having List X status, a designation that means the company gets access to classified materials with methods that are themselves designated as classified. Cambridge Analytica was founded in 2012 to allow the company to operate within the United States, and specifically to do work within United States elections. They were involved in 44 United States congressional, Senate, and state-level elections during the 2014 midterms, and they worked with Republicans during their party primaries, first with Republican primary candidate Ted Cruz, then with Republican candidate Donald Trump. After Trump's presidential victory in 2016, then-CEO of Cambridge Analytica Alexander Nix bragged openly about manipulating the campaign and winning the election for Trump, using their usual collection of tricks alongside new data that was gathered through a now-famous flaw in Facebook's system that allowed them to buy up a personality test app and, in turn, gain access to abundant information about everyone who took that test and all of their connections on the network. This information plus their typical PSYOPs toolkit, Nix claimed, allowed them to target voters in very specific ways, getting the people they wanted to vote out to the ballot boxes, and helping them convince others, people who were unlikely, statistically, to vote for Trump, to stay home. It was this breach, this abuse of Facebook's terms, that led to a significant investigation into and cash settlement from Facebook, but it also led to the dissolution of Cambridge Analytica, which is itself still being investigated in both the U.S. and U.K., and which, despite the dissolution of several of its corporate entities, including both Cambridge Analytica and SCL Group, continues to have about a dozen other corporate entities that sell similar services to similar industries and government organizations. They're still in operation, though they're being far less flashy in their self-promotion these days, which has helped them avoid public and legal scrutiny thus far. In both cases, we see a formalization of a natural human propensity to try to convince each other of things and to share information. The weaponization of the tools that we use for these purposes, but also our own desire to communicate and convince, is not new, but it is somewhat startling in its modern potency and ubiquity. It seems very likely to me but also to people who know far more about this topic than I do, experts in disinformation and social networks and this type of psychology, that this distortion, this type of misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation spread will only get worse. Now, being aware of it helps, but it does not solve the problem, especially when so many of us, when hearing about this kind of thing, will be most likely to respond as we've been trained to respond by the very entities that use these types of tricks. We will blame the other team, the opposing tribe, and assume that our group, the information that we are getting, is good and true and pure and righteous, while theirs is steeped in nonsense and lies. The unfortunate reality here is that there doesn't seem to be a silver bullet solution to this problem. That's partly because these tactics are manipulating us at the level of human nature. They're not creating something out of nothing. They are grabbing us by our best and worst traits and puppeting us around in a manner that makes it feel as if we are controlling our own actions and behaving completely rationally. These tactics are also incredibly successful at getting us to believe and do things we already believe and want to do, but to believe and do them to greater extremes than we would if left unmanipulated. There is plenty of anti-establishment sentiment, for instance, in many different groups that manifests in a variety of relatively healthy and non-destructive ways. 
With just a little push, though, that sentiment can become a burn-it-all-down outrage spiral that causes us to behave in irrational ways that are not just counter to our beliefs and typical behaviors, but which also lead to consequences that we don't actually want to see. This is especially the case with a number of populist movements at the moment, many of which have real, legitimate concerns that have been subsumed in a general sense of wanting to break everything and cause chaos, a tendency that is mimicked in other groups and political parties that have also been convinced that the only outcome that really matters is beating the other team, making them angry, and doing the opposite of what they want, even if that opposite is not what we want. One of my biggest concerns here, personally, is that this type of manipulation is more effective against groups with democratic components, because the more power people have within a system, the more effective tactics that manipulate those people can be on the structural integrity of that system. Which means, basically, that authoritarian-leaning entities can very effectively make use of these tactics against their democratic-leaning opponents, without worrying that their opponents will be able to respond in kind. Yes, there could be some limited value in the United States or European Union utilizing this kind of social media-amplified psyop against Russia in response to their meddling in pretty much all democratic elections in the hemisphere, but the impact that counter-meddling would actually have in a country where the government controls the internet and media so completely, and in which democratic powers, like the ability of the people to oust leaders who do things that they do not like, are essentially non-existent, would be quite small, especially compared to the chaos that can be sparked by Russia in countries in which large groups of manipulatable people, and we are all manipulatable, have actual power to influence the system. There are efforts in motion, currently, meant to muffle the impact these sorts of campaigns can have, but they're slow-moving, incomplete, and may not even work. Social networks like Facebook are increasing their internal efforts on this front, almost certainly because it could help alleviate some of their negative PR, because it could help them avoid catastrophic government regulations, and because they probably feel pretty bad about some of the consequences of the mis-, dis-, and mal-information spread that we've seen over the past few years on their networks which have ranged from the manipulation of elections to the instigating of actual full-on genocide. Governments around the world are likewise trying to stem the tide of mistruth, but it's a difficult whack-a-mole-style game to play, as every time they figure out a target worth pursuing, worth legislating away, 30 new targets pop up, and their attention is either spread too thin to be effective, or they continue to focus on that one problem somewhat effectively, while more or less ignoring the others out of necessity, until they can afford the resources and attention to move on to the next one. I tend to think, ultimately, the solution to this problem will be primarily individual-driven, rather than something implemented from the top down. More people utilizing critical thinking skills, more people being skeptical of all groups, and perhaps especially the groups that they're a part of, and more people utilizing the tools to which they have access, both competently and intentionally. This would make us harder targets for those who want to manipulate us. And this would help us at the foundational level become less vulnerable to these types of tactics. And although it wouldn't be a perfect solution, it would almost certainly be useful against new tactics as they emerge as well, rather than a shield against just one method of false information spread. So while Facebook implementing fact-checking and new filters might work a little, in some instances, in some cases, some of the time, reinforcing ourselves psychologically would work across all platforms, today and into the future, and would scale up 
to bolster the systems that we are a part of, that are made up of us, as well. All of which, unfortunately, is quite a tall order. And I have no idea how one would even design, much less implement, a plan to convince people to be more aware, more conscious, more discerning in this way. It's something that we're capable of, but it would require all of us to take a lot of responsibility for ourselves and for our behaviors. And that flies in the face of the way many of us have been taught to live. And it asks that we ignore many of our knee-jerk reflexes and psychological predilections, even when those outrage urges that hurt so good try to pull us in like massive gravity wells. Each of us, of course, can decide to make an effort to become more conscious of this aspect of our modern communication infrastructure either way, and to do our best for ourselves to counter this type of manipulation. But I suspect that is the most that we can hope for in this regard for the time being. At the moment, at least, false information is a lot more compelling and contagious than the mindset required to immunize ourselves against it. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called I Like to Watch, Arguing My Way Through the TV Revolution by Emily Nussbaum. Emily Nussbaum is a New Yorker culture critic, and she is somebody who knows a great deal about TV. She's actually been writing critically about television for a very long time, many, many years. And this book is actually a collection of essays that is organized in such a way that it helps you to understand what has been happening in the larger TV culture, the TV milieu and zeitgeist, as the business models have changed, but also culturally as we have changed. A quote from the book description will help to summarize it better than I can, I think. Quote, the book is more than a collection of essays. With each piece, Nussbaum recounts her fervent search over 15 years for a new kind of criticism that resists the false hierarchy that elevates one form of culture over another. It traces her own struggle to punch through stifling notions of prestige television, searching for a wilder and freer and more varied idea of artistic ambition one that acknowledges many types of beauty and complexity, and one that opens more varied voices. It's a book that celebrates television as television, even as each year warps the definition of just what that might mean. End quote. As somebody who appreciates television on a more superficial level, this was a very interesting book to read, if for no other reason than it helped me understand how people might look even deeper into some of the complexities of this space. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of I Like to Watch, by Emily Nussbaum. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsnotethings.com. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find a little something that I've been working on and that will be launching soon, two things actually, at brainlenses.com and at askcolin.com. Those are two upcoming newsletters that you can subscribe to now if you care to. You can say hello on social media. I am at Colin is my name on most of those. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.